Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this interview, I talk with Mitch Bernard, CEO and founder of Wildpack Beverages. Mitch talks about the massive opportunity he and his firm see in the beverage market that is currently growing at 23% per year, blowing many other categories out of the water. He talks about why it makes sense to uh, distribute your co-packing so that you're close to your target cities and why he sees that as a key to brand success. He also talks about the common mistakes food and beverage entrepreneurs make when scaling their brand and how you can avoid them. Mitch is a smart and driven beverage manufacturer that has been uniquely positioned to see brands succeed and fail. So his advice today is gold. This was a great interview, and I hope you like it. Hey, good morning, Mitch. Uh, Thanks for joining me. How are you doing, man? Not too bad. How are you? I am doing great. I'm doing great. I appreciate you taking the time to jump on and uh, spend a few minutes um, with me for for those who um, who don't know you, why don't you just tell me just a little bit about yourself? Um, you know where you're calling from, that kind of thing. Yeah, no. So I'm Mitch Barnard. I'm, you know, among other things, the CEO of Wild Pack Beverage Inc., which is a publicly traded manufacturing company. Um, I'm currently at this exact moment sitting in Vancouver, Canada, um, in my townhouse downtown. I spend about six months of the year here and six months in LA, and we've been flying around all over the place during the pandemic, which has been interesting. But yeah, today I'm here. Well, that's awesome. And I definitely want to dig into that. Um, but we usually like to, to kick things off with um, with a quote or, you know, if there's a saying or a phrase that, that means something to you. Do you have one in mind that you could share? Yeah, there's an interesting thing that one of my early mentors, who's actually my philosophy teacher in undergrad, told me when I was kind of lost trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, with my life. And he said, it doesn't really matter what you do. You want to turn your life into a perpetual motion machine. Um, that's kind of the quote. And I've always found it to be super interesting because you know, as I've analyzed highly successful people and tried to mimic a lot of the traits that they have, one of the things that you you typically notice um, about them is that they never stop moving. Um, and while they're you know prudent in decision making, they always make decisions and they're always moving forward in some respect, even if you know it's not the most optimal way. It's kind of what I've tried to do um, in my life, and it's what we try to instill in all of our high level people at Wildpack. So I think that's a a good one for me and one that I constantly think about. 
Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And I think it's very applicable for entrepreneurs and and those who, who want to, um, you know, do some of the changes or make some of the changes um, in, in an industry like you, right? To come in and, and just shake things up, just keep moving. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's great. Uh, that's great advice. Um, do you, uh, I'm just curious, do you, um, are you still in touch with, with that mentor? Yeah, I talk to him all the time. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I've been like one of these very fortunate that um, I've kind of known early on that I'm going to need a lot of help to get to where I want to go. So I've been, you know, I haven't been super shy at asking people to you know, mentor me and, and that kind of stuff. And I, and I stay in pretty close contact with those people. You know, my direction into becoming a lawyer was wholeheartedly because of, um, you know, this gentleman. And so, you know, I kind of owe it to him to you know, continue the dialogue and keep learning. And, you know, he hasn't steered me wrong yet. So nice. nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Right. So, um, you're in the beverage industry, yeah. Um, but you're a lawyer, so why don't you connect the dots for us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, my whole life has been uh, a series of oddly, um, oddly connected dots, I suppose, to use your analogy. Um, and nothing seems to, if you look at it from a distance, make a whole lot of sense. Um, but it all makes a lot of sense when you like really dig into it. So, I mean, my whole backstory is I grew up in a farm in like rural Ontario. Um, you know, nobody in my family ever went to university. I ended up getting to go to university because I was good at throwing a lacrosse ball at a net. Um, I, uh, so I ended up getting to go. I never applied to university or anything like that. It was never part of the plan. Um, and it just sort of happened all, you know, legitimately six weeks before school started. Wow. Um, so I went there and I did that. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and you know, the biggest thing when you're a student athlete is staying eligible. Um, especially if you're like me and you know, you don't come from an academic family or background. Mm -hmm. Um, so I ended up taking philosophy because everyone thought it was impossible to fail essentially. And, uh, and that's where I got the really awesome mentor that I was telling you about. And he kind of sat me down and was like, look, man, you know, you have some gifts that I think other people might not have. Um, and it really, for you is going to come down to just like steering your, um, you know, your desire and drive um, into the right stuff. You know, at the time I was, you know, pretty high level, um, at the sport I was playing and I was doing a bunch of other sports and, um, you know, seeing a lot of great success. And I just wasn't really paying attention to academics or, you know, anything, you know, quasi business related. Um, and he sort of was the person who pushed me into that. And, and, you know, I started to do really well in school, I ended up, you know, writing the, the LSAT and getting into law school, having never met a lawyer in my life. Um, it was just sort of, you know, some <laughs> random thing that I was like, well, this is kind of the next extension, you know, it's something else to try to win at. Um, so I ended up going to law school. Um, and then, the way law works is it's super odd. Um, the reason why I went to law school, I should say, actually, it was, you know, never really to be a lawyer. It was more for me to learn about business because I didn't know anyone who mm. had ever done business, um, frankly, just having grown up where I grew up. Um, so it was a way to get around those people and kind of understand. And I remember I called my dad my first week that I got there and I was like, I think I'm going to come home because these people just, you know, these are all individuals who have, you know, went to the best schools and undergrad and, you know, they did the greatest internships at, you know, all these massive companies and I'm just so underwater here and I'm never going to fit in. It was kind of like, you know, suck it up um, and get it figured out. And, and I stuck it out and I ended up doing really well in law school, got recruited to a very large law firm um, early on, went and did that, um, kind of worked my butt off. And then my best friend actually convinced me to quit to become an entrepreneur. And that was the genesis of um, Wildpack. Um, where he was like, take, you know, this, this life that you battled for, just leave <laughs> and go and, uh, and, and make no money and become an entrepreneur with me. And that's what we did. And you know, we, f we founded a couple different things and wild pack is the one that took off. And, you know, here we are today. And he's now my, 
chief growth officer and our other early partners, our CFO and, uh, you know, things have kind of gone, gone crazy. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting, you know, first of all, that feeling that you felt at law school, you know, that, Hey, maybe you're the one who doesn't belong or, you know, you're in over your head a little bit. I think that's actually really common, right? I wonder how many of your other classmates felt the same way, you know? Oh, um, yeah, I'm sure there was lots. I mean, it was, uh, I was, to be clear, though, I was definitely the outlier. I was you know, <laughs> wearing a John Deere t-shirt. I cared more about working out than school um, at the time, even though I was doing well in school, um, you know, and I didn't even really know. I remember we were all talking about, well, what firms do we want to get recruited to? And I remember asking um, one of my classmates, I was like, well, what are the good ones? Because I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, and then, then the other interesting thing about your journey is that law is actually, um, you know, it's a pretty, you know, logical path to business, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that your idea to, hey, this is how I'm going to learn about business isn't, isn't actually that far-fetched, right? Like, I think it's, I think it's a good plan for a lot of different, different people and future entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it definitely is. And I mean, I wish it was my bright idea, but frankly, again, it was my mentor uh, in, under, in undergrad who said, Hey, look, like you seem like you really want to be a, you know, frankly, a business person. This is a really good way for you to get there and, and meet those people. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing, and I think Elon, you know, obviously he talks about this all the time is that, you know, law and finance are really, really great pathways so long as you you know, keep your eye on the overarching vision, which is, you know, to ultimately become an entrepreneur and build something. It's very right. easy when you get into law or finance to get lured away by the certainty of that paycheck, right? Um, and just sort of get stuck in it. Um, so like staying, you know, laser focused on the vision is really, really important. And I was fortunate enough, you know, not only like I say, to to be guided not by my mentor and undergrad, but to be guided by my, you know, friends and, and now colleagues to, you know, stay true to that when, you know, I think a lot of people would have just stuck in because, you know, in by all external measures, I had made it. Right. So, right. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, okay, your business. So, you know, the elevator pitch, right. Uh, We've got 30 seconds. We've got, you know, just a a little bit and you want to tell me what you guys do. So what exactly do you do? Yeah. So wild packs, a middle market beverage manufacturer focusing on taking brands uh, that are smaller than Coca-Cola and doing you know, about 70% of the manufacturing required to take their product from idea or concept or formula into, you know, canned, finished good, sitting on a shelf, a retailer. Um, What's interesting about it and, you know, the exciting aspect of it is that the market is completely underserved. There's far more demand than capacity. And the market is massively archaic relative to the individuals that it serves. You look at the avatar of a normal CEO of a middle market beverage brand, and, you know, they're a mid 30 something who went to, you know, some type of Ivy League school, um, but they're venture backed, you know, they're, they're very young, and they're very disruptive. And our industry is exceptional, like the exact opposite. It's exceptionally old. <laughs> it's, right. not disru- it's not disruptive at all. Um, and, you know, a, really, a good example, we use a people that runs on, you know, faxed POs, whereas the rest of the world runs on, you know, Amazon ordering. Right. So um, we saw like a massive opportunity, not only to you know, build capacity against a lot of demand because ready to drink beverages are growing massively, um, but also to completely disrupt the way that industry is, is, is kind of structured um, through digitization. 
Okay, so let's um, let's dig into both of those things. You know, sure. I'd love to hear more about the the way in which you guys are are disrupting the industry uh, sure. because I absolutely had the same experience working with. You know, I haven't built a, a beverage, but mm-hmm. I have um, made you know physical products, consumables. Sure. Um, you know, and I largely cut my teeth in the supplement industry, and I absolutely agree. It's really old school, um, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of blew my mind when I first interacted with the industry. Um, and so, the, but I'd like to actually start with, um, with the demand question, right? And so just talk to us about the size of the market, you know, it's growing, um, you know, what the opportunities might be for, for people who are looking to get into it. Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, so if you look at like the, the beverage market, you know, in totality, right? Like obviously it's a $60 billion market, but that's not ours, right? You need to drill down on it. Um, so where we set ourselves up, the cross section is, um, in the ready to drink category. So obviously that's, you know, a sealed product that's shelf stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's growing at about 23% year over year as of now, which is, you know, relative to other industries growing at a, a rampant rate, like almost double um, or triple what, you know, many other industries are growing at. So that's kind of your baseline. And then we get more niche from there. So we are solely focused on the aluminum can format. You know, we chose that format, not only because there's a lot of demand there, but also because we wholeheartedly believe in environmental sustainability and aluminum cans relative to other container types are by far, um, you know, the most sustainable. Um, so if you look at that, an interesting statistic that we always point to is, you know, seven years ago, 30% of new brands um, products were put into an aluminum can and now it's about 75 or 80% hmm. um, are in the aluminum can format. Um, obviously it's not all environmental sustainability reasons. There's, you know, costs, they're, they're cheaper, um, you know, a few other things they're easier to manufacture. Um, but you know, so that's making the the growth rate in RTT uh, RTD hyper concentrated in the aluminum can. Got it. Um, yeah. Format. Um, and then again, we're middle market, so we're not focused on like the top of the market, like running Coca Cola or Pepsi or Monster or Red Bull. Um, and the reason why we actually slotted ourselves there and why the demand is really kind of called like um, pulling in in that direction and that part of the the, the market is you know kind of the the, the part of the the soccer ball that's blowing up um, is because if you look at consumption patterns and you know end consumers, you're seeing a massive shift um, from you know I'm a Bud Light person who drinks the same Bud Light every Saturday to you know I'm a craft beer person who drinks you know many different um, brands, many different SKUs, and why that's really meaningful for manufacturers is um, what defines whether you co-pack us who's middle market focused or you co-pack with a massive co-packer like Lafresco is how large your production runs are. And every time you switch to SKU, it's a new production run because we have to sip, clean the system. Um, so we're set up to run smaller production runs, whereas Lafresco is larger production runs. So if you have more brands, more SKUs, all of your, even though your total gallons might be the same, your production runs are smaller, right? Um, so that shift in the way that people are consuming has shifted the way that people build brands, which has shifted the way that people manufacture those brands. So when you take all of that, you have RTT that's growing at this crazy rate. It's hyper-focused in cans, and it's hyper-focused in craft-sized brands, which is exactly what Wildpack is solving. Um, and frankly, we were one of the first movers to look at that space um, in any meaningful capacity. Most of our competitors are like owner-operators, single facilities, single-service um, processes. And we're doing the exact opposite. We're bringing all those services under you know a singular roof and then taking that roof and multiplying it across the U.S. that so you have a network. Um, because the other thing about these brands is they're massively um, sensitive to shipping costs um, as right. they move into new regions. 
Um, for example, you know, if they have to ship from New York to LA, you can, you know, in some circumstances, you add 10% uh, to your COGS, which obviously, you know, completely erodes your gross margin, which is the most important thing for a beverage brand um, at their early stages. So um, the market is massive. Um, you know, we put the TAM in, you know, the couple billion range for our specific um, niche area. And uh, it's growing, like I say, at uh, an accelerated kind of 20, 20 some odd percent a year. Um, and there is nowhere near enough manufacturing capacity in that space. Um, so that's why we're, you know, con- a consolidating, but also um, building to you know, create more capacity. Yeah, yeah. I love what you said there about, you know, um, how this is all driven by a change in consumers. Right? Yeah. And I think that um, that it's a shift that that um, that we see, but I think it's easy to miss because of how, you know, how slowly it's happened over time and it's yep. been happening. You know, um, I was talking to my wife the other day and we were talking about how it seems like today everybody's a foodie, you know, 100%. Which, is, which is another sort of way of looking at, at this shift that you're talking about. Right. Um, everybody's tastes have changed. People are more adventurous, you know, rather than drinking the exact same thing over, t- you know, over a long period of time, like your Bud Light example. Yeah. You know, people are willing to try new brands and to, you know, try niche things that give you a different experience, like, you know, some of these craft beer brands. You know? Yeah, and, and it's super interesting, right? Because like the craft beer was definitely the first mover in, to your point, this kind of like subtle shift into um, kind, of, kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, like a foodie experience um, in mm-hmm. the beverage space. But you're seeing that just ripple into every category um, yeah. that we service. You know, nitro coffees are all doing, you know, weird hits of different flavors and, you know, other simple, you know, very interesting things, you know, lots of different skews. We saw it in the seltzer space. Um, we see it in the soda space. Like it, it legitimately in the energy, better for you energy space. It is like rippling across every single sector that we service, um, which is very interesting. And I mean, you know, it was one of our core theses. So thankfully we were right. But, you know, to your point, it, it, it hasn't been this like, you know, turn that happened overnight. It, it has been, you know, a very long like kind of thing. But to your point, it's been so subtle that I think most people haven't noticed. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like everybody experiences it, but you know, haven't necessarily put a finger on it, right? 100%. You know, looked up to to look around and say, "Wow, this is completely different." Yeah, um, yeah. And you know, obviously, you're talking about it in the beverage space, but I mean, right. it's something we see across, you know, um, all sort of CPG consumable type products. You know, it's you know, even just going to the grocery store and you look at you know something like, for instance, um, like a protein bar. Yeah. You know, there's like a million brands these days, you know, that, that provide protein bars. Whereas I think, you know, just 15 years ago, you know, maybe you had just, you know, one or two or three, you know, um, sitting on the shelf. And I think, you know, even groceries had to shift, you know, the way that they display things, the way that, you know, the products that they bring in um, to kind of align with this consumer demand. Yeah, no, I, I think that you, you hit the nail on the head, right. And, um, you're seeing it in electric cars now as well, right? Like it's it, it's super interesting um, to see all the different brands and all the different SKUs across all kinds of different um, industries. And I mean, I think it's it's really really awesome, right? Because you're giving people a choice at the end of the day, um, which you know there's a there's a lot of choices being taken away from people, especially with what's been going on with COVID with respect to you know our freedoms and the things that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really cool to see. Um, you know, that they're getting options in other aspects. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to be a part of it, for sure. 
Yeah, the you know I've been thinking a lot about um, grocery because I just finished reading a, a book on it. Um, it's called The Shelf Life, you know, and okay. it's, it's all about the transformation of grocery stores. Right. You know, and it actually kind of articulates a, a lot of these changes. And from the grocery store angle of mm-hmm. what's had to change in the supply chain in right. order to be able to meet that demand. Yeah. Um, and, and it's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. And so what do you think about the end game with this? You know, like uh, how, how does this continue, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in, into the future? What's your thesis on that? Yeah. So, I mean, our core thesis is that um, people are only ever going to get more particular. Um, you've kind of seen it everywhere um, and these trends, you know, in, in other industries that are a lot longer dated. Um, you'll see like a new thing come out. People are just kind of happy to have that new thing. And then as it becomes a normalcy or normality, I suppose, um, people will get more picky about that thing. And, and you know, in the beverage industry, really good examples of this is like when energy drinks came out, you know, it's just like, oh, I wanted that drink because the energy drink's new. And then it's like, well, no, now I want an energy drink. Um, that's organic. And I want an energy drink that's, you know, organic and, uh, you know, has a caffeine source from, you know, whatever, green mm-hmm. tea. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, no, no, I want an energy drink that's organic, sourced from green tea and, uh, you know, whatever was. Like you know, zero sugar. Yeah, whatever. zero sugar, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see the, the complexity of, you know, consumables or CPGs or products. I'm just always continuing to be a, innovative and B, disruptive. Um, I guess those are kind of the same thing, but um, and more complex, I suppose, is what I actually um, think. So I think that will just uh, be a continued trend and you will need to be very flexible um, as a manufacturer of those things um, to be able to service, you know, the never-ending kind of, you know, nuances, I suppose, that continue to you know, come up. So, you know, for us, we're building a lot of flexibility into our strategy. Um, with respect to like when we're building, for example, a manufacturing line, um, we're not saying, okay, well, you know, this is our current composition of customers. These are the can sizes. Um, you know, we want to make sure we can do those. Like, that's not actually the question we're asking. We're saying, well, you know, how can we build this line so that if someone decides that a 20 ounce can makes a lot of sense, we can easily move into that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of trying to anticipate continual, you know, evolution or innovation. Um, and I just think that's going to continue. Um, we're only getting more complicated as people. We're not getting more simple. So, yeah. So, so why don't we uh, switch gears just a little bit and talk about um, some of the the things that you guys do different, right? You talked about um, building for and trying to solve for the new type of brand that that's showing up, you yeah. know, and not operating in the same way as some of the, some of your incumbents. So, you know, what would you say that you guys do differently? You know, how is the experience different for a brand that works with you? Yeah. So, I think the biggest thing that we the, the biggest difference, right, before you get into like the very intriguing kind of like technological things that we're doing, but just in the like general baseline strategy, um, we're building a network um, of facilities that are all within about, you know, if we, our goal is to have a facility within about 300 miles of every major end distribution center in the U.S., uh, which mm-hmm. is essentially every major city. Um, and, and why that's important is I kind of alluded to it earlier, when you look under the hood of a, a middle market or emerging beverage brand, let's call it, you know, somebody who you know, just took over New York and um, they have the end velocity there that VC's given them some money and now they're going to expand into LA. When you look under the hood of that company, like I said, you, you, you realize how sensitive they are to shipping. Um, so, you know, most co-packers, uh, you know, they're one facility and then when that facility gets sold out, they take the, the space next door, right? Mm-hmm. Add another line, increase the speed and they just keep doing that over and over again. And we're building this network uh, because we, you know, understand how sensitive these companies are. 
um, A, to um, the shipping and receiving costs, um, but B, also essentially beverage brands are just sales and marketing firms and they don't, you know, they're not set up to run a very complex supply chain. And once you start using, you know, different vendors in different regions, um, you start to have a very complex supply chain and you need high level supply chain people. And that's not what they want to be spending their money on. Um, mm-hmm. So working with us in a network, you know, they can come to us and say, Hey, look, you know, our 2022 forecast has us putting, you know, a million gallons in New York, LA, you know, whatever, Chicago and Atlanta, you know, just for an example, you know, 250,000 gallons each. And then we can do the planning on, okay, well then you, we need to get your ingredients to these different locations and they're close to your end distribution. Um, and you, you know, benefit from the economies of scale, because you're still buying a million gallons from us. Um, but, you know, it's being directed into different of our facilities that we're dealing with that. So you don't need the supply chain person to figure that out. And rather than working with 10 vendors, you're now working with just us. Um, so like we're solving a lot of, you know, those type of issues um, for them, you know, not only on a direct cost basis um, with shipping costs, but also on a complexity basis, which allows them to, you know, lower their SGA, which gives these brands a better opportunity to succeed, right? Because if someone's going to buy them like Diageo, what they're looking at is and velocity and gross margin. So if we can solve for those two things, um, and then, you know, Diageo takes over their complex supply chain later on that they're in a better situation. So, I mean, that's the, the overarching strategy. We, we're building the system to better serve emerging beverage brands, um, generally speaking. And then, you know, from our side, like you joked about earlier, and I did, you know, our industry largely been like, fax me the purchase order. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is just silly. It's we, not a joke is, is a yeah, thing. That's, that's yeah. the sad part about it is yeah. I've actually it's, had that experience. It's terrifying. Um, yeah. And so like what we did, the first thing we did when we kind of broke into the industry was we built a fully you know, open source API ERP um, so that we could then take that ERP that is obviously managing all of our production, managing all of our inventory, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and then we could take that and drive it to a customer UX that you know, feels and looks a lot more like, we always joke, a Domino's pizza tracker. Uh-huh. Um, then uh-huh. it, it does anything else where, you know, you can see it's like, oh, my cans are ready and your cans are going into production and it's in this, you know what I mean? It just, it makes it a, a better look and feel. You can do all your ordering online, so on and so forth. Um, you can, you know, we're getting a bit out there, but you know, we want to, this is something I always thought was crazy that, you know, beverage brands fly to watch their production because they want to see it happen. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, why not just put a, a camera there so that they, they don't have to get on a plane? Um, so, you know, we're going to have like logins where people can, you know, flip on when their production's happening and watch the production run happen. Um, they can be there digitally in the batching rooms um, to make sure that, you know, things are going the way they want them to go, um, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, all of that is something that we're building out currently. We're thinking about, uh, based on timelines, dropping our V1 kind of, you know, end of this year, Q1, and then iterate on that through two or three versions next year, hopefully fully um, launched by the end of 22. But again, you know, it's going to be a completely different experience where, it's, you know, the whole process should be digital. Um, and a lot of it should be automated relative to, you know, what you and I have gone through, fax me your PO, fax me your ingredients, you know, let's get on a phone and build a spreadsheet together. Um, it's just a massively inefficient system that we're trying to correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's massive opportunity in there. Um, and, you know, it's actually, you know, the genesis for Fiddle, you know, um, building software for these type of industries is that we see the same thing and the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I know we're getting short on time, but I, I want to just take a minute and maybe talk about some of the the mistakes that that you see, um, you know, people that are launching beverages um, make 
you know, what are some things that they need to keep in mind as they try to launch their own brand or as they come and engage with somebody like you? Yeah. So, um, we see a lot of, you know, new brands, right. And, uh, we've been very fortunate that we've seen brands that have, you know, we've obviously seen brands that come through that don't make it, which is obviously quite sad, but we've seen, you know, three or four brands that have come through and now they're, you know, hundred million dollar companies that have been sold to, you know, AB or something like that. Right. Um, so we have been like uniquely positioned to see what's, you know, been very successful for people. And, and the, the, the best advice that I could give to a beverage brand is you need to win a city um, and you need to, and by win a city, I mean, you need to prove and velocity in one major city um, and then leverage that to moving into the next city and then leverage that into moving into the next city. Um, because what you don't want to do, the thing that kills beverage brands is I'm going to, you know, kind of take my resources and spread them out like a risk map. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to attack New York and LA and I'm going to attack Atlanta and I'm going to kind of win all of them. And then you don't hit enough end velocity to convince a VC that on scale, you're going to be massively profitable, right? Because what they're looking at is for every marketing dollar, how many dollars of sales do you generate relatively? So you know, kind of pushing all of your resources into one singular city, um, both on a marketing and sales perspective, but also on a manufacturing perspective, because if you're only manufacturing hit velocity in that city, you're working with one co-packer and you're, you know, producing less total volume, which is a much lower strain on your cash flows. And then once you hit the the velocity you need at the end retailer, and basically you get the like check off from a potential, you know, next round of investor. Then you start planning the next city and you make a very methodical growth pattern rather than, you know, we've seen beverage brands that come in and they raise you know, $10 billion on a dream or something. Mm-hmm. And they go, all right, we're going national distribution tomorrow. Right. It's like, well, okay, well, you might be able to do that. You might be able to get into distribution, but you know, a month from now, you're going to run out of marketing dollars because the amount of dollars that you need to actually create at velocity in all of those locations is just so steep and you're outlaying a significant amount of cash to, you know, co-pack with us to get product into all of these distributors. And most of those relationships, if you don't hit the end velocity, the distributor makes you buy back your product, right? And then you you couple that with the fact that your product, most beverages now, because they're so complex, have a 12-month shelf life. Um, and, you know, you're in this situation where you've outlaid all of this. You, you haven't won anywhere. You end up getting stuck and you have to do a down route or something. So, you know, to synthesize that into you know, one sentence of advice, it's go slow and be methodical and win you know, city by city, um, rather than try to, you know, chunk the whole thing off in one go. Nice. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's switch gears to the quick fire round. I've got four questions for you. Sure. Um, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Um, what's uh, one tool or resource that has helped you uh, the most in your career? Mentors. Um, and that sounds weird because it's not like a tool or resource. Like I think the normal person would say, but seeking out people who have been there and done it before. Um, and can give you like very frank advice has been the single best thing that I've done. Okay. What's one book uh, that you could recommend to the audience? Oh, what's my favorite book? Um, Marcus Aurelius Meditations. And I'm a weird guy, right? Because I'm a philosophy guy, but um, Stoic philosophy is actually like very, to me, very important for business because you know, the core fe- the core tenet basically is, you know, and, and I actually have a Marcus Aurelius quote tattooed on my arm, but it's a, uh, you know, Pain and, and suffering is really just perspective, um, and you can change that perspective because you control it. And, and successful entrepreneurs, the ones that I've seen, are people who you know can endure a lot of problems and a lot of pain, essentially, 
Um, and the only way that I've been able to do it is by changing my perspective and seeing it more of an, as an opportunity than as an issue. Um, so I would read that because the meditations is an awesome introduction to Stoic philosophy. Can you say the title again? Yeah, Marcus Aurelius is the author, and it's just mm-hmm. the meditations. It's a very famous, very famous, uh, you know, work. Yeah, Ryan Holiday, I think he's a marketer, and he um, recommends um, Stoic philosophy all the time. And, and I think he's recommended that book. He also wrote a book on the, ex- the exact same subject. So yeah, that's pretty much the only way I'm, I'm familiar with it. But yeah. um, I think that's a great recommendation for entrepreneurs. Sure. Um, what's one piece of advice that you'd give your 21-year-old self? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it would just be stay the course, honestly. Um, and I was fortunate that I kind of did in some respects, but there was a few things in my life that, you know, I let go of a little bit too early because I was, you know, trying to do so many different things. So staying the course and staying focused, I think, um, is the key. And it's similar to the advice I give to a beverage brand um, earlier where you're like hyper-focused on, you know, one goal and then moving to the next one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, staying the course on something that you've defined as your number one priority is very important because you're going to have a lot of opportunities and, and saying no to most of them is usually the right answer. And who is uh, one person in, in your field of work, maybe another entrepreneur or um, somebody that you look up to that you would love to take to lunch? That I would love to take to lunch. Elon Musk, obviously, is like my number one guy. I, I think I was actually, I have a performance coach that I talked to and we were talking about why I liked him because obviously there's a lot of like, you know, fancy, you know, interesting public opinion about him. But the thing that I really like about Elon is, uh, is that he's so focused on the long-term mission that he completely disregards immediate popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he makes decisions that are, you know, for the long-term mission, even though it might make people hate him today. And I think that's massively difficult to do. And I don't really care so much about, you know, that he's hyper smart and, you know, he's this weird dude. Like, that's not why I want to go for lunch with him. I'd want to like talk about like how he actually conceptualizes and, and balances um, dealing with, you know, near term issues. Cause like, you know, how many times has he moved production on, you know, a Tesla thing, hundreds. Um, but for him, it's just like, it's so irrelevant because he's looking on like a you know 10 year horizon and something that most people just don't even understand. And I'd love to understand like how his brain computes that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great one. Yeah. Well, to, um, to wrap up, you know, if somebody wanted to engage with you or reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? And just shoot me an email. I, uh, I am quite responsive and if I'm not, my team is, and my email is on our Cedar profile and it's kind of all over the place, frankly. So I'm an easy guy to get a hold of actually. Okay. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. Sure. All right. Well, Hey, appreciate it. I know you've got a, another call to jump on, but thanks yeah. for taking the time. Any parting words for entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, just keep grinding. It's uh, you know, the hardest thing is doing it and you just got to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's good note to end on. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Yeah, cheers, man. Appreciate it. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Ciao, bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.